Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. I'm Victoria Budson, the Executive Director of the Women in Public Policy Program, and we welcome you here today to our seminar. Here at the Center, we focus on closing gaps in political participation, economic opportunity, education, and health. And in addition to those of us here in this room who will be listening to Paul Van Hippel, we also have a very large podcast audience. Our seminars have been downloaded more than 18,000 times. So we ask that you're respectful to our podcast audience at home. And at the end of the talk, that questions are actually questions that end in a question mark and are on topic. And do you prefer to take questions during or at the end of the presentation? I can take them during. Okay. Yeah, and at the end. That sounds great. And today, Paul Van Hippel will be presenting on his research estimating income inequality from binned incomes. And the methodology which he's created is something which is of particular interest to those who've been following what the EEOC has sent out an order on, which for the first time, the EEO1 form will be collecting wage data within binned categories. And the first collection date is supposed to um, conclude in about one year, yes. Yeah, not, not everybody might know the EEOC. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission set up within the United States to ensure fairness and lack of discrimination within employment practices. Um, excellent clarification, Hannah. Paul Van Hippel is an Associate Professor of Public Affairs at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He studies educational inequality and the relationship between schooling, health, and obesity. He's an expert on research design and missing data, and the three-time winner of the best article awards from the education and methodology sections of the American Sociological Association. Before his academic career, he was a data scientist who developed fraud detection scores for banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and the Bank of America. He has his BA from Yale University, a PhD in computer music and music psychology from Stanford, an MAS in statistics, and a PhD in sociology from Ohio State University. Because one PhD, <laughs> <laughs> no, one career wasn't enough, but to be exceptional in many. Um, I'm a sociologist by background and training and was particularly excited about the methodological piece. I saw an earlier version of this presentation at the EEOC DataNet conference and was really blown away by the ability to make effective use of data that um, in other contexts had been seen as pretty opaque. And there'll be a very large, if everything continues on as it's uh, scheduled to at the EEOC, a very large set of data. And do you want to? No, no, I was just thinking about it. <laughs> um, not, not uh, at UMass, they will be collecting this EEOC data and eventually making it available to researchers so that we'll have really new data. And Paul will describe some of the, the emerging tools to analyze such data. So with that, I will turn it over. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So you're already motivated on this topic. Um, I'm not sure how much I need to, to supply, but um, I got interested in this topic actually for a different reason. I was interested in estimating income inequality within and between school districts to understand patterns in income. 
investigation, and so on. And uh, what I found was that the data often look like this. Instead of having the income of every family in the school district or even a sample of families, you'll have a bin summary uh, telling you how many families are in each of several income brackets. And this is actually a lot of income brackets. There are 16 here. Uh, the first one goes from zero to ten thousand dollars. The next from ten to fifteen thousand dollars. There are some five thousand dollar bins. Then at uh, fifty thousand dollars, you start having ten thousand bins. Then fifteen thousand bins, and the bins get wider as they go up, and the distribution gets more sparse. Um, and just to illustrate what the data look like, uh, many of you have seen data like this before. But I've got here the uh, richest and poorest um, school districts in the United States. So there's McNary School District. Um, which has no families in, with uh, incomes of above $100,000. And there's Rancho Santa Fe, which has uh, more than half of its families, or approximately half of its families with incomes above $200,000. Um, and these come from a, a, a long-form sample called the American Community Survey. Um, that's, um, oh, I'm sorry, this is, there's later data from the American Community Survey. This is actually from the long-form census. Um, and it resembles data that will come out is currently collecting on public employers. Uh, there's some misunderstandings about um, the limitations of bin data. Um, and just to summarize this, uh, there's an impression, this is from um, um, uh, a response that came out to the proposal to, uh, um, to report bin data on private employers through the EEO1. And the claim that's made in this response is that because these bins are um, in areas of interest can be ten or fifteen thousand dollars wide. It's really not possible to estimate uh, pay differences that are smaller than that, and that turns out not to be true. Um, although you can have individuals that are in the same pay band, and so you're unable to tell within a fairly wide margin whether how much their pays differ. Um, if you want to estimate mean pay differences or median pay differences, you can often do that with a lot more precision. Uh, in fact, I'm going to prepare. I'm going to compare three methods today. Uh, the two methods that I've been working with uh, over the last year are able to estimate mean pay difference or mean incomes within $1,500, even when the average bin width is about $10,000. Um, and there's a third method that's actually better than that. I haven't, uh, we haven't calibrated it yet on, on meets, but it should give more precise estimates. So the fact that the um, bins are a certain width does not preclude you from making inferences that are finer than that. Uh, and there are famous examples of this in statistics. For example, if you measure people's height in feet, you can still get a pretty good, if you have a large enough sample, you can still get a pretty good estimate of what average height is uh, with a standard error of, of less than an inch if your sample is large enough. Um, so there are different quantities you might want to estimate. You might want to estimate mean income. So there's a lot on uh, the mean income difference, mean pay difference between men and women. You might want to estimate a standard deviation. Uh, in my work on counties, I've estimated different inequality indices like the coefficient of variation, the Gini coefficient, the style coefficient, the mean long deviation. And, uh, you might want to estimate different quintiles or um, quartiles or different percentiles of the income distribution. Uh, and finally, you might want to do, this is an area that I, I've not uh, done particular work on, but I'll talk about it at the end. Uh, you might want to do regression analyses where you control for mean income differences. You, you have to mean income differences when you control for, say, experience, age, um, number of children, that sort of thing. There's some very nice data for evaluating these sorts of so the census puts out bin income distributions for counties, states, uh, school districts, the nation as a whole. And it also, in recent years, has produced um, statistics which summarize 
what the underlying income, underlying non-bid income distribution looks like. So I'll tell you what the true mean is and the true Gini coefficient. Um, and so what uh, the evaluation um, technique that I've used is to take the bid income and to see how close different methods come to reproducing the true income statistics from the non-bid income that underlie these. And uh, there's been surprisingly little work done on this. There are only a couple of papers uh, before we got involved that actually evaluated particular methods um, with respect to real data as opposed to simulated. You know. Simulated data is often problematic because it'll be simulated from some nice smooth distribution that may or may not look like the real distribution of income. I thought it was better to look at um, real income distributions. And this is the first uh, study of that. It's a, it, this is the biggest study of how these different methods perform uh, using the broadest array of uh, data sources. And we released, you know, we're in, in this era, uh, just describing what a method is like doesn't actually help people very much unless you also release <laughs> software. In fact, it's been said that nowadays a statistics paper is really just documentation for the software that ought to be released at the same time. So um, we've released software for Stata and R that implement these different methods. So the simplest method you can do, and it actually turns out not to be such a bad method, is to just set each household income to the midpoint of its bid. Um, and the reason it ends up not being such a bad uh, method, if you have a lot of bins, like 16 bins here, uh, the bins aren't that wide, and so putting incomes pretty much anywhere within the bin is a, is a reasonable decision. Um, uh, this is not a super reputable method, but I want to, uh, it actually turns out to perform as well as some more sophisticated methods, so I want to talk it up a little bit. It's, um, it's what I call bin consistent, which means that as the number of bins increases, the estimate gets better and better. And not every method really has that property. Uh, the next method I'll talk about doesn't. Um, so uh, it does have this issue, in fact, all methods have this issue that the, um, well, I'll just talk about the first two bins here. So you've got the first two bin, it goes from zero to $10,000. So you just assign all families in that bin to $5,000. Right, it's a very crude approximation, but it has a long history of statistics. Um, and then you only run into trouble in this top bin, which has no upper bound. What do you do about that? There's a traditional technique. This was worked out at the Census Bureau in the 1960s um, by a female statistician, by the way. Uh, but what you do is you um, estimate a Pareto distribution that fits the top two um, income bins, and then you plug in the, what the mean of that Pareto distribution would be in the top bin. Um, it turns out there are issues with the traditional formula. Um, when the Pareto distribution has a very heavy tail, you can get estimates for that top bin that are negative. Clearly, it doesn't make any sense. So um, I substituted a harmonic mean for an arithmetic mean, and it turns out that has a better, a more robust property to it. So this is a modified version of a very small modification of the technique that's been used for 50 years. And this is really the baseline. It's very fast. Um, you can run this on thousands of counties in a minute or so. So you can run it on thousand employees in a minute or so, or thousands of employers in a minute or so. And some of the other techniques we're going to look at are slower. If you're going to give up uh, speed, you need to get some accuracy back, and that's why this method is an important baseline. The con of this method, of course, is that it's unrealistic to think that all these families have this in the bottom bin, for example, have incomes of exactly $5,000. They're no doubt spread across that bin, and you're surely losing something when you treat them as all being at one discrete point. So the next, uh, so I call this the, uh, it's a flavor of a midpoint estimator. Um, I call it the Pareto midpoint estimator because you're fitting a Pareto distribution to the top two bins to do something about the top bin, and I call it a robust Pareto midpoint estimator because of this 
idea of using the harmonic mean to the arithmetic mean in that top bin to achieve more robust inferences. Before you talk about the next sure. For this to be credible, it gets better, yeah. right? You're saying the bigger, right. the bigger sample, obviously, but what was the yeah, the, the robustness? Um, you can see McNary, for example, has very few families in it. In fact, um, so if you add up the bins from McNary, it's about a hundred households, um, and it's a one in eight sample. So there are probably only about twelve households in the sample, and the method still runs. Now you're not going to get a very precise estimate out of it. Um, but it will still run, and that's an advantage. That, that, that's why I built the robustness into it, because the old technique that was used at the Census Bureau it had problems with small samples. Um, in, in small samples, it would sometimes produce a negative estimate for the top bin, and we fixed that with this robust uh, improvement. I'm sorry, I, I'm, so I'm not an expert in how you do this, but yeah. so that's why I'm curious. So yeah. how do you know how accurate it is that you don't know? I mean, with the feet and the inches, of course, you could yeah. measure Right. Yeah. No. That's a good analogy. Yeah. We were able we'll to we're able to evaluate the accuracy because the census, in addition to reporting this bin income distribution, also reports what the Gini coefficient is from McNary uh, School District and what the mean is. So we have that kind of gold standard. Okay. Can you tell us what the Gini coefficient is? The Gini coefficient is a measure of income inequality. Um, it's <coughs> similar to the coefficient of variation, which is the standard deviation divided by the mean, except instead of the standard deviation, it's the mean difference, it's a standardized mean difference. All right, so another approach that we used, um, so it, it, it's funny, people have been, over the years, have been very dismissive of this midpoint technique, but it turns out that a lot of the techniques that have been tried since have not been better. One of the techniques that's not better, that was some trouble to implement, um, is this technique of fitting continuous distributions to the income distribution. So, there are different continuous distributions that are used to model income. Um, people who are kind of new to the area, they immediately think of the log normal distribution, which has a, a long tail. So you've got a lot of incomes kind of that are low, and then a long tail stretching into high incomes. That turns out to be a poor model of incomes. Uh, greater distribution is another distribution that uh, has been used for 100 years. It also turns out to be a poor model of, in of income distribution. Some of the better models, uh, some of the models that fit better are the Dagum distribution and the generalized beta distribution. And in fact, there's a whole family tree. All these distributions are related. So here's a family tree with 10 different income distributions in it. And um, what we did here is we figured, since we don't know the true distribution of income, let's fit all 10 distributions um, and select the one that best replicates the counts in the bins. So sometimes you'll fit an income distribution and you, you think, well, there's no way that, that these bin counts could have come from this income distribution. So we select the one that best reproduces those bin counts, and we use that distribution to generate estimates of the mean, the median, the Gini coefficient, and all of that. Uh, so a pro of this is that it treats incomes as continuous, unlike the previous technique, which treated them as discrete at single points within the bins. Uh, the con of this technique is that even the best fitting distribution may not fit all that well. In fact, we typically find that we can, even in small samples, we can reject the best fitting distribution 80% of the time as being the true distribution of income. So these are that doesn't mean it's not useful. These distributions can be good approximations to the true distribution of income, but they don't actually fit all that well, and that limits the accuracy of the technique. But this methodology means that you would just understand you would use a different distribution potentially for each count. Well, yeah, right? I mean, whatever fits best, right? right? Because your distributions look very different in the two counts that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so there are. I mean, there are ten distributions. Every, not county by county. Right. City. 
we fit all ten distributions to every county, yeah. and then within each county, we fit the we pick the best fitting distribution um, according to uh, the AIC criteria. Uh, is our measure of fit? So yeah, each county could have its own distribution, um, but the range, even though there are ten distributions and they represent a pretty broad range of distributions that have been used in economics to model incomes, um, the range of shapes is not all that broad. So for example, none of these is bimodal. If you had a county where there were a bunch of rich people on one side of the track and a bunch of poor people on the other side of the track, it wouldn't necessarily model that county's income distribution very well. So you could certainly add to this family and you'd achieve better results, but um, we use these 10 income distributions and that's a big step forward from what's been done previously, which is typically choosing just one. Um, then there's a, this is a, uh, emerging work. This this was something that um, we had not done at the time that I met Victoria in Washington. Um, an alternative is what's called um, what we call non-parametric bin smoothing. So here, um, I wonder how well you can see the dotted line here. So what we're doing, um, if you just focus on the dotted line here, what we're doing is we're spreading the incomes evenly across each bin. We get a kind of a step function that models the distributions of incomes. So instead of putting all the incomes in the middle of the bin, we're spreading them out evenly across the bin. So you've got a uniform distribution within each bin. That's um, a simple crude step function approximation. Turns out it works better than anything that we've talked to up until this point. Uh, but something that works even better is to smooth the steps with the uh, solid curve here. Um, and there's a couple different techniques for doing that. There's recursive, you can divide the bins recursively, so make little bins inside the big bins, uh, or you can fit a, a, a cubic spline, and you end up with a smoother curve. Um, what these techniques have in common is they really combine the best of both of the previous techniques. They model income as continuous, but they also perfectly reproduce the bin counts within each bin. So you end up with a kind of a weird shape. Um, this is the distribution of incomes, family incomes in Ohio, um, and I don't think it would really be well fit by any of the parametric models that we've looked at. Um, but it, so none of those parametric models would reproduce the bin counts as well as this does, and for that reason, it has the potential, and it turns out uh, the potential is realized to uh, produce better estimates from the bins than these other techniques do. And I can credit um, I can credit my uh, friend David Hunter and uh, his student for uh, implementing this method in R and even coming up with it. So so just to uh, tell you what's all, what all is available, I think I might have glossed over that. The ro this robust Pareto midpoint estimator, where you just put um, incomes at the midpoint of the bins, it's available in Stata um, as part of the RPME package, RIPME. Uh, it's also available in R as part of the bin equality package. The uh, Stata package runs a bit faster, I believe. Um, the multi-model generalized beta estimator uh, was written by uh, Yutong Guan and me, University of Texas, and it was published for Stata as uh, the MGBE command, and uh, it's also available as part of the bin equality package in R. Sam Scarpino developed the bin equality package. And um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with using user-written commands for Stata, it's pretty easy. It's one of the great things about Stata's extensibility. You just type SNC, SSC install and the name of the command. SNSD install MGBE would get you that one. But I think after you see the results, the one you'll really want is the bin smooth package for R, which Hunter and Brown have put up uh, in August. So let's look at some of the results here. We'll start with counties. 
Uh, and I'm going to show you the results. These are from our pa 2016 paper in sociological methodology. Um, and where we were just comparing the first two methods, the third method uh, hadn't, uh, uh, hadn't come into existence yet. Um, we were looking, so the horizontal axis here is the true value of the S demand. Um, in the on the left scatter plots, the S demand is the mean. On the right, uh, in the middle scatter plot, the S demand is the median. And in the right scatter plot, the S demand is, is the Gini coefficient. So we're estimating the mean, median, and Gini coefficient, and we're comparing them to the true values of those statistics, which is along the horizontal axis. And then at the, along the vertical axis, we have uh, estimates achieved during uh, using different techniques. So uh, the bottom row of estimates are estimates achieved using the multi-model generalized beta estimator, and the top row are estimates achieved using the uh, robust Pareto midpoint estimator. So you can see that there's a strong correlation between the true statistics and the statistics that we can recover from the bin data. Um, there's a very strong correlation for the mean, and the two methods look about equally accurate in reproducing the mean. Uh, there is a strong correlation for the median. Here, the bottom method has an advantage because it models incomes as continuous, whereas the top method, the midpoint method, can only put the median at the midpoint of some bin, and that's what gives it a kind of striped appearance if you look at the scatter plot. The estimates still aren't bad, not bad at all, but uh, they can't be as accurate because they're constrained to these discrete bin midpoints. And then uh, on the right, we have estimates of the Gini. These are not as good. Um, you can see that the cloud of points is still around that uh, 45 degree line, which would indicate perfect prediction. Um, but the estimates, particularly for the multi-model generalized beta estimates on the bottom, they tend to be below the line, and that indicates there's a negative bias. So the method tends to underestimate inequality. The um, robust Pareto midpoint estimator doesn't underestimate inequality quite as much, but it's still quite a, uh, there's still some scatter around the line. And uh, when we published this paper, we kind of thought that this was the best that could be done. I had in the back of my mind that there might be a better technique out there. And I talked to um, David Hunter, who's a mathematics professor at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, and he basically solved it over the summer. He's <laughs> <laughs> always doing stuff like that to me. So um, we, we just have initial results in this. We haven't released a working paper yet. That's going to come soon. Um, but here are the results that he, he gave back to me uh, for US counties. So you've got the true county, Ginny along the horizontal axis and the estimated county Gini along the vertical axis. Um, and I, I haven't really lined it up. I mean, it's not laid out the same way, but you can see that these estimates are actually considerably better than they were using the other two techniques. And here's a sort of numeric comparison of them. So um, here's a table where we'll just, uh, the first row of this table gives results from the robust Pareto midpoint estimator. This is where you're assigning samples to the midpoint of the bin. Um, the next row is the result of the multi-model generalized beta estimator, where you're fitting these parametric distributions to the generalized beta family. And then the, uh, the third method is this non-parametric bin smoothing idea that, um, <coughs> uh, that, that Hunter and his student developed. And um, if you look along the row here, um, if you look at the, at the Gini estimates, which is where we have estimates from all three to uh, you'll see that the um, upper two methods have very comparable performance. They've got a bias of about negative 2%, meaning they underestimate the Gini coefficient by about 2% on average. They have a root mean squared error of about 4%, meaning that they're typically, their estimate of the Gini is within 4% of the true value of the Gini. And they've got a reliability of about 85%, meaning that when you look at a Gini, the coefficient that's produced from these models, 
about 85% of the variation from one county to the other is due to the true variation in the Gini coefficient from one county to another, and the remaining 15% is, is estimation error. So um, I'm going to apologize. I've not met David Hunter's student, but her name is Drown. Uh, so I want to make sure I get her name right. So what Hunter and Drown came up with was this non-parametric thin smoothing technique, um, and it has a bias of less than one percent, a root mean squared error of less than one percent, of, of about one percent, and a reliability of ninety-nine percent. So it's considerably better than the techniques that we've been using up until now, um, which, by the way, are not too bad for many purposes. Um, and to clarify, when you yeah. say true, you mean true base and individual data. Yes, individual non bid data. data. Right. Okay. So the census collects these income, yeah. um, uh, that's an income variable that's yeah. not binned, yeah. and it produces its own summary statistics, and then it discloses to the public these binned income summaries. So we're comparing what we can recover from the binned income summaries to the true underlying data, um, or, or test bits produced from the true underlying data. data. So I don't have um, uh, comparisons for the non parametric bin smoothing technique to these other two, and these other two estimates. Um, but it works better for pretty much any estimate than these other techniques, even when there's not much room for improvement. In the case of estimating the mean, both of the other techniques are 99% reliable, so there's not much room for improvement there. Uh, but for estimating the median, there's a bit of room for improvement, and the non-parametric smoothing technique uh, approaches it. I, ordinarily, I wouldn't present results that are preliminary um, versus results that are cooked, but this technique is so clearly superior to what I published on that uh, I thought I should uh, tell you. And there's software available that, that implements it. Um, so, of the three techniques, this non-parametric thin smoothing technique is um, the most accurate. Um, between the other two techniques, there's really uh, the um, midpoint estimator seems to work about as well as fitting parametric distributions, and since it's much faster and easier, and maybe you don't even need my software to implement it, if you had to choose between those two methods, you might as well use the midpoint estimator in many situations. Um, some statistics are harder to estimate than others are, so the mean is a very straightforward to estimate. You can get 99% of its reliability with a uh, very simple technique. The median is just a little bit harder to estimate, and then the Gini is much harder. The Gini is more shape-dependent. Um, and then I just want to point out what these, what these root mean squared errors mean here of 3%, for example. Um, a root mean squared error of 3%, if you consider that the average household income is about $50,000, a 3% error would be about an error of about $1,500. So we're able to estimate the mean of county incomes to an error that's in the neighborhood of $1,500, despite the fact that these bins are five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars uh, wide. So that's uh, a credit to the method that indicates that it actually can detect differences in mean pay that are smaller for bins. Uh, here's some data from states in 1980. Uh, this was uh, a data set that was used to evaluate previous techniques and. Um, you can see that pretty much all this, the multimodal generalized beta approach works beautifully here. Um, so along the horizontal axis, you have the mean income of each county, and then the mean income of each, sorry, not county, each state, and then the median income of each state, and then the Gini coefficient for each state. And you can see that each one of these statistics lines up just about in the line of equality here, indicating that we're getting almost perfect estimation for the technique. The robust Pareto midpoint estimator, uh, I mean, not much room for improvement. It works very well for the mean. Gives a kind of stripy um, estimates for the median. And uh, for the Gini, it gives estimates that are highly correlated with the true estimates, but biased a little bit positively. So uh, this goes to show that um, you can't say that these techniques are consistently 
bias downward or upward, it seems to depend on the particular data set you're looking at. Um, and the states in 1980 turns out to be a relatively straightforward estimation problem. For some reason, you get pretty accurate estimates for these techniques. It may be that state incomes in 1980 fit uh, distributions in the generalized beta family pretty well. By 2005, that wasn't the case anymore. Uh, so we basically ran uh, the same thing. In 2005, we have the mean income here um, on the horizontal axis. And you can see that even that the, um, in this case, the multimodal generalized beta estimator, it has a slight negative bias. Most of the points are a little bit <coughs> aligned, not enough to be concerning for many purposes, but a little bit below. Uh, the robust Pareto midpoint estimator actually performs a little bit better, putting more points on the line. Um, and then both techniques underestimate the Gini coefficient. So Gini coefficient is below the line. For both of these approaches, it's further below for the multi-model generalized beta estimator, indicating that that technique has more of a bias in these data, this data set than the other one does. Then there are these other measures of inequality. These techniques really don't work nearly as well for those other, other uh, approaches. Uh, the tile coefficient is underestimated, again, more by the multi-model generalized beta estimator than by the robust Pareto midpoint estimator. And the mean long deviation is also estimated by more um, by both techniques. For every one of these estimates, the robust Pareto midpoint estimator does a little bit better. Um, the parametric smoothing techniques, I don't have graphs to show you for those yet, but those do better than either one of these techniques. Uh, but they still have a negative bias in estimating these less common um, inequality statistics, the tile and the mean long deviation. Could this be the comment because, as you suggested, there are more Bimodal distribution. I mean, with growing uh, income inequality, I mean, could you? Yeah, I, I, um, I we speculate about this a little bit in the paper, but um, it appears that, the, that these distributions from the generalized beta family don't fit as well uh, in the 2005 data, and there's a larger proportion of families in the top bins. Um, so you have this kind of stretching of the upper tail that might break some of the techniques that were working well in 1980. Yeah. So, so the big increase in income inequality in this country is between 1980 and 1990. And so 1980 is kind of um, uh, the situation that existed before that first, and uh, the 2005 data are afterwards. And so it may be that the uh, shape of the income distribution is less modelable using parametric techniques than it used to be. Um, these biases that I've talked about, you know, a bias of, uh, or, or an inaccuracy of three or four percent, um, may not seem that consequential, uh, but it can be consequential when you're looking at trends. So here I'm showing you the trend in income inequality from 1970 to the present. And you can see that uh, the true Gini coefficient grew in every decade, um, with the greatest growth happening between 1980 and 1990. Um, in some periods, the growth was pretty small. So between 2000 and 2006 to 2009, income inequality increased by, I'm just eyeballing this here, looks like about 2.5%. Um, and that is smaller than the estimation error that's characteristic of some of these methods. So it turns out that if you're trying to reproduce these trends using different estimation methods, not every method will reproduce them successfully. So for example, um, the multimodal generalized beta estimator, it does actually capture the upward trend across all the decades here. Uh, it shows a higher income inequality. Uh, it shows a higher Gini coefficient in each decade than in the decade before. Um, doesn't quite match the true uh, income inequality. There's an increasing bias where it's underestimating inequality in the recent decades, which again is symptomatic of um, recent income distributions not fitting these distributions quite as well. 
Um, but it does capture this uptrend, whereas the robust Pareto midpoint estimator, uh, it doesn't capture the uptrend, the consistent uptrend quite as well. So it shows income inequality going down from 1970 to 1980. That's because the technique didn't uh, uh, overestimate income inequality in 1980, and it still overestimated it, sorry, overestimated income inequality in 1970, and it still overestimated it in 1980 by, by not as much. And so the change in estimation error actually swapped the true trend. So that's a, a, a bit concerning. It's something that you want to be clear about when you're trying to estimate small differences or subtle trends. Yes? So can you describe the rise from 10 years of fully developed dimension and error with predominantly it's a four time range or something? Is it pretty predictable? Is it really a problem about this rise from tailing? Yes. A, a, yeah, a lot of the estimation challenges that you have are in the right hand tail, and it doesn't really matter very much when there aren't many families up there. Uh, but when you have a lot of families or households or individuals moving into those upper income bins, uh, <coughs> you, just, you have to make some assumptions. So um, in summary, I think this is good news for folks who are trying to study income inequality, and in particular folks who are hoping to use the new data from the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to do that, uh, because it turns out that you can come up with estimates that are much more precise than uh, the bins that they're based on. Um, it also turns out that we have some usable <coughs> techniques that are implemented in available software for estimating income statistics, um, and uh, um, the best technique is the one that was released most recently by Hunter and Brown. Uh, it's available on the, uh, the CRAN, the, the, the Comprehensive R Archive Network um, for, for R users. So if you're an R user, this is your moment to shine. If you're, <laughs> if you're a state user, we don't have this technique implemented for that yet, but you, we do have commands implementing the other two techniques, which are not bad for many purposes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for watching this. Right. Yes. Uh, so there's been some there's there's some work where you tr where you uh, take advantage of the bin means as well. Um, so for example, if you have the bin means, you don't have to assign families to the midpoint of their bin. You can assign them to the mean, and you do get slightly better estimates that way. Uh, also, if you have the grand mean, sometimes in census data, sometimes the grand mean will be reported. And Hunter and Brown have found that that allows them to dramatically increase improve the accuracy of their estimates primarily by placing a constraint on where income can be in that upper tail. So you know you have a smooth distribution that fits the, that fits the lower bins, and then you get to the upper bin, and you kind of don't know what the shape of the tail is because you don't, have, um, you don't have a top to the bin. But if you have the mean income, then you can constrain the shape of the tail to reproduce the mean income, and you do get much better estimates that way. So we have, the software currently does not um, yield standard errors, but a straightforward way to, would be to bootstrap the bin counts and uh, estimate standard errors that way. It still wouldn't tell you whether your estimate is biased, but it would tell you something about the, the 
uncertainty of the estimate. <coughs> the, the variability of the estimate, I should say, that component of uncertainty. Yes? Uh, you mentioned in the introduction <coughs> that you might want to talk about um, regressions based on variance. Right, yeah. So, so we're just producing these simple income statistics, which are useful for our purposes, which are estimating income inequality and segregation within and between school districts, for example. Uh, but for other purposes, you might want to control for different uh, uh, factors, and there are different ways to do that. Um, so, for example, um, there are um, interval regression techniques where you uh, have interval sensor data. That's another name for, for binned data. You have the uh, binned incomes for women and for men, um, and you can use an interval regression technique to estimate what the average uh, difference is. Typically, these are parametric techniques. So you're assuming something about the income distribution. Uh, as we've seen, that ends up not being as accurate as some of these non-parametric techniques. So an alternative would be to maybe subset the data by the variables of interest use. You might put women and men in different experience categories. Um, so you could compare women and men with similar experience levels, and then you could bootstrap the standard errors. It all depends on how complex a model you want to fit. If there are, if there are 10 regressors, then this subsetting method probably wouldn't work very well. But if there are, there's just one or two, you probably could because obviously a very important question for people trying to understand which part of what the wage gap is due to discrimination. Right, part eliminating other possibilities. Selection and other things. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, it's funny, you're stretching me outside of my can, so forgive if I prove my questions if they're naive. But um, I'd be interested, do you have any, two, two questions, I guess. Do you have any reflections on what implications this would have for um, estimating the gender wage gap? I mean, what, uh, and then, and then I guess what the other thing I was wondering about is, you know, if, if part of the challenge is in the tail, and I think what we're learning from Claudia Golden is that that's also probably where the, a lot of the gender wage gap comes from, that, that men's distribution is probably, uh, it probably has a longer tail, um, uh, a longer, thicker tail than women's does, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, would, what would, how would you think about um, that kind of comparative estimation problem if the distributions were different for men and women? Right. Um, <coughs> so there are, there are two different questions. I want to make sure I answer. Yeah, yeah. So typically the wage gap between men and women is, on the, is in the neighborhood of 20% for private employers. And so that's, the, the good news here is that that's larger than uh, the estimation error that we're getting from these techniques. So it should be possible to estimate that and put a standard error around it. Um, and you should be in good shape as far as that's concerned. <coughs> if there are um, a lot of people in the upper bins, and there won't be for some employers, right? So if, right. You're, if you're looking at uh, hospitals or investment banks, you might have a lot of people in those upper income bins, whereas if you're looking at retail sales, you're probably not, and it's not going to be an issue. Um, there's inevitably going to be some uncertainty about what the distribution looks like in those upper tails. You will be able to say things like there are twice as many men as women in the, upper, in, in, in the top bin, and that may be informative. And you may be able to, um, if you have supplementary information, you may be able to estimate the shape of the distribution in the top bin. And so actually one recommendation that I made, I don't think it was it was taken, was that in addition to reporting bin income distributions, employers should be uh, asked to supply the mean income right. for groups of interest, whether that's men and women or managers and uh, line employees. Um, and because that supplementary information allows you to say something about the shape of that upper tail and allows you to estimate a lot of I don't think the EEOC is doing that, but it might be possible to do with Boston area employers, for example. One 
I might also be able to do pay gap by bend. Not necessarily by bend, literally by bend. But you could do a lower quartile, a middle quartile, just mm -hmm. to exclude the 200 pay club. Mm -hmm. Just to get a sense of yeah. A, how active your estimates are, but also of how that might differ by you could visualize the two distributions, right? I mean, you sort of have a visual representation in the form of the bins, but if you smooth them and overlay the two smooth distributions for men and for women, then you're able to see, um, uh, you know, in what areas the, the distributions overlap and in what areas they separate, and that might tell you uh, whether most of the pay differences are at the high or low end of the distribution. Um, but uh, so I'll just push back, and then you tell me if I got this wrong. But my understanding of a lot of these studies by like Francine Blau, it's an economist, she's going to present actually later in the folks is that we don't actually like there isn't much of a gender like we, we, we can we can explain pretty well the gender pay gap for like a non-college educated worker I mean so for the lower end of the distribution we actually have a pretty good command of what's going on there what Claudia's research suggests is it's actually that the, the, the where more of the unexplained portion is is actually in that higher end of the distribution yeah. so okay. that I mean so it'd be worth paying I mean, you want to do both, but that is kind of, I mean, where it's trickiest, you know, but is where, is where, we, where, we, where we lack the data and where we most need to kind of understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah. There, there's an issue with these bins, right? So, well, unfortunately, they use the same bins for every employer and for every county, and uh, you could see on the example that I had up previously that, um, I can't seem to bring it up now, but, um, Yeah, so for Rancho Santa Fe, for example, where half of the families, half the households are in the top income bin, uh, the bins really aren't right, right? You would, you would ideally, if you were choosing bins for Rancho Santa Fe, you would divide the income distributions differently. And there's really no reason that you couldn't do that with private employers or, or with counties. You could, do, you could take something you know about the income distribution within a particular um, uh, profession or, or um, um, industry and you could set up pay bins that are industry specific. And that might allow you to uh, set up pay distributions that are appropriate for a hospital or an investment bank that would be different from those that, that you were sending to uh, a chain of gas stations, for example. <clears throat> uh, but we're not currently doing that, and for that reason there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about the upper bins. In a place like McNary School District, uh, the upper bin's not an issue, but in a place like Rancho Santa Fe it is. So perhaps in a, uh, a future version, this data collection project, we could talk about how to optimize the bins so that you get the most information out of each employer. That's a really interesting. I, I've looked at how these bins were chosen, how the Census Bureau chooses these bins, and it's actually not even optimal on average. So uh, we could have <laughs> we, we we could have better bins, even if we use the same bin for every county. It probably wouldn't improve, improve the estimates that much, but this idea of having different bins for each county or for each employer would be have much more. The bins probably haven't changed over time. Oh, the, the, the bins do change. With, they do with, change. Yeah, they do get updated from time to time. They, oh, they, they increase do. with inflation. So, so, so they get that right. We're, okay, we're yeah. adjusting for that. Okay. That's right. That's right. But they, yeah, that's right. But they're they're based on an assumption of uh, log normality, and that turns out to be a, a bad assumption for income distribution. So there's, there's a number of improvements that are possible, uh, but really you'd want to tailor them to different industries. Yes? Um, so I'm not familiar. Is there um, like some literature and survey design that says that I mean, I guess here that you actually they do actually have the, the, the real numbers, and they don't want to release them because of anonymity reasons. But, but um, it sounds like when we're talking about just designing these surveys for firms, it, you, they prefer to for 
that or something like that? There are a lot of privacy concerns about income data in the United States. In China, you can, when you first meet somebody, you can ask them how much money they make. And they'll tell you. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so it's not considered sensitive information everywhere, but, uh, but in the U.S. it is. And Victoria may know more about uh, why these bins were chosen. Well, what's interesting is I don't. I'm just wondering methodologically. Right, like a, even though it's been, been oh, I've never actually heard anyone discuss why these bins were chosen. Interestingly, okay. have you? And have you? No, that's why I was like, if we get better response rates, then it makes sense, maybe. But no, it's don't really the reason the existence of generosity. I mean, in the case of the country data, there's real income underlying it, and it's just yeah. a question of how do you release sure, county so income summaries in a way that's tractable. You want to enforce it a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I think it'd be very revealing, right? Companies have had tremendous anxiety about not unreasonably about releasing um, granular data about what it shares in terms of strategy, what it shares in terms of labor market, and so forth. Um, though we do have some nice examples in practice of um, anonymizing that data when it comes in so it can still be used in research. So hopefully we can get uh, people's concerns um, mitigated in such a way that we can have more data for research. Yeah, just to chip in on that kind of conversation as well, though, is that, so I know that in uh, in college campuses when, they're, when they try to figure out how much like what the income distribution is for the families of the students mm -hmm. at the college, they ask the students a lot of the time, what's your family income distribution? Or what's your family's income? But a lot of a lot of college kids just don't know how much their parents make. Mm -hmm. And so having it in bins, they might know a ballpark, so having it in bins makes it easier for them to answer that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, while that doesn't necessarily apply here, you might find that certain groups of people may not actually know accurately how much they some people might know more accurately than others uh, for whatever reason. So I think that that might kind of help with why a bid might make more sense. One of the other things that's um, come to light, for example, in the census data, it's all self-reported. So most of the time when you ask them what they're making, even though the census is covering a period of time, people usually answer with a high watermark. And people may round, and we don't really have good data on do different demographics round differently. Do people you know, any way you want to look at that. Um, so some of the work which is being done here in Boston is the first time, as far as any of us involved have been aware, that you actually have re uh, employer-reported data. And so when the EEOC provides this, again, it will be the first time we have employer-reported data, which will actually <coughs> be specific to the time period. So it'll be interesting to see, compared to the census, whether or not um, we see these estimates rising or falling. Oh, I see. So you're saying that what you're seeking is accurate, but not the accuracy, because it's self-reported. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the non-bin data. Uh, yeah, right. it's right. the people are yeah. not, not criticizing. It's the best yeah. you can do. Yeah. You're saying yeah. maybe you are more accurate than the correct. Accurate data. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> it's unknown because since it's self-reported, right? There you go. So what would be your optimal bin structure? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I thought about this uh, uh, a little bit. Um, my intuition—I mean, so I, I'd have to—I'd <clears throat> have to delve into this. But my intuition is that you want a roughly equal number of families or households or employees in each bin. So you want to space the bins so that they get you equal um, uh, numbers of, of persons in each bin. That, that's my intuition. Is what would give you the uh, most accurate. But I haven't looked at that in detail. 
covered the distribution. People do more, you know, for developing countries, you have to spin data, you want to get the coverage rate. It's an interesting getting the shape of the distribution and input of the two bottom bit bias. Does this give you that or just give you the Gini coefficient? Uh, so the the non-parametric smoothing technique especially will give you the shape of the distribution. And it will be more accurate for the bottom bins than it will be for the higher bins because they're sparser. But you have to know all. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. At, at least for the time being. So the, the other technique started out in R and we ported them to Stata um, last summer. So I'm not saying it will never be in Stata, but it's currently not. Yes? So the, well, there's existing um, bin data for public employers, state and county employers, okay. uh, and the, the new regulations extends that to cover private employers as well. Okay, and then what like education institutes or anything like uh, uh, non-profit? I'll, I'll defer to Victoria on that. There's She's been following this work closely. There's, there's different. Um,
in Greater Boston in general. Um, and we know that we draw, we oversample companies that have more people in those job categories. But uh, we're not doing other kinds of bonuses, which I think would probably skew it even further in terms of overall cost. And you're putting people in the middle of their bins? Is that how you're approaching it? Um, we are, well, we've just, the bin is job category, and so we're coming oh, up. Oh, you, you have true incomes, you don't have? Yeah, we have true incomes, oh, okay. yeah. I see, you don't have the bin, right. income. got it. So, well, you, you, you have just the whole, you have the aggregate, like whatever the company pays to all the people who all are people, in that job and that's, category. And that's broken down by job category. Okay. Oh, yeah, so, okay. it's, so it's aggregate yeah. comp within the job category. Right, got right. Yep. How many job categories do you have? Uh, the 10 off the EO one more. not something that I'm really prepared to talk about. But uh, yeah, I mean, these, these things tend to be driven by things like uh, tax policy and labor policy, um, technological changes. All, all those trends are pointing in the direction of increasing inequality. Wonderful. And I know that there's, um, oh, it's a first question. <laughs> I can't see behind myself. Go ahead. So, so I'm, um, it might be even pretty naive question because I'm a European and we've got a lot of administrative Sooner, I think, um, also in the US, there's more admin data coming in, and also in order to verify some of these techniques that would be helpful if you want to use the census or the analysis. But for example, text data, or that you would, in this data, you would be able to observe the precise earnings. Text data? The text, like the text record data, like Raj Chetty. Oh, tax records, yeah. yeah. So, so mm -hmm. the Raj Chetty's group yeah. has done a lot of work with, with text data. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's different, the information you get from tax returns and what you get from uh, these other sources. Versus what your father's compare, so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't, um, the only thing I can really comment on that is there were robust discussions um, at the policy level, and there are those who were very invested in acquiring further data from companies, and there were those who didn't want. 
Um, and you know, I think there's always issues around what people have access to in terms of tax data and how the processes work. But. So there's no administrative data on the wages of employees in terms we, of like from the company side? Within the United States, what the EEOC will collect will be the first time that we have company reported wage data. Um, and as Mary Rose accurately pointed out, it's only including samples of companies with 100 or more employees. Um, there's a lot of sort of policy framework about what is an undue burden for a company and size of companies often sort of where those break points come in. Um, and just interestingly, when we look at family and medical leave, it, it's a different break number. So I think what that number is and what that looks like um, sometimes can be important when we're looking at particular demographics and who is the, you know, who's likely to be in a smaller versus larger company and how that gets captured. So I just think it's important not to lose sight of what, what we still don't know and won't be collecting in the sample as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this information. And I just wanted to, um, next week we have Deborah Cole, who's a professor emeritus from the Simmons School of Management, and she's doing a workshop on strategic negotiation moves that work at work. So look forward to seeing you all then.